you're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Ariana Gonzalez. I'm the Client Services Manager here at Chug Attorneys and CPAs. And please join me in welcoming Immigration Manager Jagan Tamarisa from our Virginia office. Hi there, Jagan, and welcome. Hello, Ariana. Thank you so much for being here. So for today's topic, we are going to be talking about all things immigration, the latest news, developments, and trends in family and business immigration. Once again, thank you, Jagan, for being here. Quick disclaimer before we begin, and this conversation is for informational purposes only. It does not create an attorney-client relationship. So let's start talking about the USCIS fees. So we know USCIS wants to increase the fees. Will these new fees dent the pockets of stakeholders? It appears that the fee hike will be steep in some cases. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, Ariana, that's very true. The uh, January 4th rule that proposed to significantly increase the filing fee for non-immigrant and immigrant petitions. H-1B employers will see an increase by 70% and L-1 will see an increase by 201%. The E and the DNs by 121%. All of this introduction is because USCIS has introduced a new fee which is called asylum program fee and that amount is $600 and that fee needs to be paid with every I-129 and I-140 petition to be filed with the agency. Especially with respect to I-129, it has to be paid with every initial change of status and extension petition that's being mandated. So that increases the cost tremendously. Going forward, USCIS is also going to decouple the I-485 filing fee. Currently, uh, each applicant pays $1,225 to cover the 485 work permit and travel permit. But now USCIS is going to decouple and collect the fees separately for each application. And that will see an increase by about 130%. The H-1B registration fee is going to go up from the existing $10 to $215 per registration per applicant. So obviously, uh, with this increase, uh, USCIS wants to uh, increase its revenue, and they'll see an upward tick from 4.5 billion to about 6.4 billion. And they do this because it's an agency that's fully funded by the filing fees. They don't get any grants from the U.S. government. That's quite a significant increase. Thank you for talking about that, Jagan, and, and the importance of that. So let's go into a little bit about peculiar RFDs and 221G notices. So is it true that for-profit entities are ineligible to file cap-exempt petitions? Can you talk a little bit Yes, so that? this is a peculiar RFE that we got recently. I mean, the regulation is very clear. Um, for-profit entities can file capital regulation. But the most relevant factor is who is the ultimate recipient of the beneficiary services? If that uh, organization is either an institution of higher education, a nonprofit entity, or a nonprofit research organization, then, or, or even a government research organization for that matter, um, then the petitioner can file a cap exempt petition. So, to give an example, if I'm a private company doing 
medical research and development of prosthetics and let's say George Washington University wants to come and collaborate with me and I'm going to give them services, then yes, I can certainly file a gap exam petition. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, can a beneficiary get an H-1B extension if their I-140 priority date is current? This uh, part of the regulation is a bit tricky. I mean, it's there in the regulation. So usually if applicant has an I-140 approved, I-140, and the priority date is not current, they usually get a three years extension. But if in any point of time, their priority date becomes current, and the applicant does not file their 485, then the, the RFEs are coming back and saying, why should we grant you an H1 extension because you didn't file the 485? There is only one exception in the regulation. If you have any extraordinary circumstances that prevented you from filing the 485, then you may still get the one-year extension. Certain situations may benefit, for example, if the employee is abroad and wants to file the 485 and can't do because unless you return back and you're physically present in the U.S., you can do the 485 filing. So that person may probably be uh, given the one-year ex uh, extension. Other situation could be the progression of the visa bulletin. You know, one month your date is current, next month it's not, then probably you may be able to get away with that. So it's a very tricky thing. So while you're on that topic of the I-485, is it true that some USCIS um, field offices are requesting medical reports for pending I-485 applications? That's true, Ariana. Um, the USCIS is reminding applicants nowadays to file their medical reports, uh, and this reminder is coming pretty frequently. We have seen notices come particularly from San Antonio, Detroit, and Sacramento field offices that they want the medical reports to be sent in advance, irrespective of whether your priority date is being current or not. So applicants should be prepared to submit those. It can come in any way. It's coming either in an email form or in a, a physical notice. So you need to be very alert on that. Great. Thank you for stressing the importance on that. Can you talk about how petitioners, particularly startups, um, are being treated these days? Well, uh, it's a different ballgame when it comes to startup, and I'm going to speak a little bit on this. The flavor of the RFEs that are coming for startups are in different forms. The first, obviously, is going to be whether the offered position is a specialty occupation. And especially so because startup companies don't usually have an employees and there is always a suspicion from USCIS, hey, maybe the position could be filled by somebody who really doesn't need that kind of skills. So it requires a detailed explanation, extra evidence. I mean, the standard is uh, kind of like pushed high by USCIS that you need to give quite a lot of information to show that this position is a specialty occupation. The second kind of uh, query that's been coming around is the business viability. And because these are just fresh entities, they don't have any, you know, any, any capital, any profits or um, any net income or anything. So they really want to know, first of all, how are you going to pay salaries for all these uh, employees? I mean, especially in times when you are filing more number of petitions, but don't have the means to support to pay the salary. The other kind of flavor of the RFE is shared office space. And most people nowadays, uh, especially companies, are going for shared office space or virtual offices. And it looks like USCIS is pretty vast database or 
means to check on that. They can easily seem to find out. I mean, we have seen even in our office where they have uh, reached out to leasing agents or that particular office space to find out what, what kind of space is it, how many people can it host, how many offices you have, and so on and so forth. So those kind of questions are also being asked. The next problematic area is if the employee is an owner of the company itself, if the employee has some amount of interest, some amount of ownership interest in the company, then they are questioning or whether there is will be a proper employer-employee relationship. Now, employer-employee relationship has been subject to litigation and uh, the district court has put a, a hold on implementation of that rule, but still that part of the uh, employer-employee relationship in some form exists in the regulation, so they're going to come back and ask for that. So these are the various types of problems that startup entities are facing. So somebody who's in that kind of situation needs to plan ahead. So while we're still on that topic, the the new public charge rule, does that apply to non-immigrant visas? Well, yes, it does. I mean, the public charge rule has been, you know, final rule came out in December 2022. It, it has an uh, applicability both in non-immigrant and immigrant visas. But the public charge rule commentary that came out said they're not going to apply it to extension or change of status applications if the person is filing within the U.S., but it's being applied abroad and as well as in green card situations. We had a situation where a person got to 21G because he happened to come to the U.S. and had to go through some sort of medical procedures. And there was one other applicant who signed up as a guarantor for another person's medical expenses and had to go back and is applying for visa and the consulate wants to know, hey, you know, what happened to those bills? Did you pay them or did you not? I mean, uh, if you're likely going to be subject to public charge, then I think they're going to prevent you from giving you a visa. Great. Thank you so much for covering that important topic. So let's go into premium processing a little bit. So USCIS seems to be committed to expanding the premium processing program over the last few years, and they are covering a variety of cases. Can you talk about the steps they've taken for this? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, premium processing is a very important program within the USCIS, and they are expanding it in a phased manner. Previously, they have expanded to include I-140 petitions, especially for EB-1 and EB-2 classification. Importantly, it's going to be very helpful for applicants filing under EB-1C, multinational executives or manager category. They're going to take about 45 days to process those kind of applications. And if your priority date is current, I mean, you could be lucky to get your green card maybe in a six to eight month time frame. On March 6, USCIS has made premium processing available to certain F1 students with pending applications and in all forms of OPT, pre-completion, post-completion, and STEM OPT. In April, they're going to make it available to uh, initial applications too, uh, and premium processing can be filed online. And finally, in the near future, uh, USCIS plans to provide premium processing for I-539 applications especially to those who are intending to move to F1 or J1 status. Great. Thank you for talking about those updates on the premium processing program. So let's talk about the H1B cap a little bit. It is H1B cap season, so there are some press pressing issues that we should be talking about. So from a compliance point of view, who can pay the $10 registration fee? Can you talk a little, little bit about that? 
Yeah, uh, the amount seems for a small and very uh, trivial, uh, but still from a regulatory point of view, the regulation is very clear that it has the responsibility of the petitioning employer and not that of the foreign workers. So either an employer or the attorney can pay the fee, but not the employee. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you for that clarification. So what happens to the registrations that are not selected in the random selection process? Registrations that are not selected in the upcoming March random selection process will remain in submitted status until USCIS determines it has received sufficient applications for the year. If required, and it has happened in the past, USCIS may conduct a second random selection, but it probably may happen only in June or July, not in June, but July probably. And then once they once they have accounted for all the cap numbers, then all the uh, registrations that are not selected will be marked as not selected. Okay, great. Thank you for talking about that. So can USCIS subject a client for potential fraud review if they don't file petitions for the selected registrations? Well, in the past, they haven't done it, but that is not to say they won't do it. So the general expectation is if you're submitting a registration and it gets selected, USCIS wants to see you file that petition. But USCIS has not mentioned how they're going to do uh, or investigate any fraudulent cases. I, I think they are look, going to look for a pattern, a practice of this abuse. So such employers, you know, who have shown this pattern, I think could be subject to a review and can be subjected to monetary fines or criminal penalties for potentially making false statements and misrepresentations. That's how it's going to be treated on the registration system. But so far, there are at least no reports out there that I have seen that says USTCS has taken such action so far. Great. Thank you for talking about that. So let's talk about if a company has multiple entities, for example. Does each entity submit a registration for the same beneficiary, or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, this is a question that keeps coming back every year and is now much hot topic. Obviously, USCIS policy is to uh, prevent multiple registrations for the same beneficiary by related entities. So if you are a different entity and you have a different federal ID number, you must be very careful when you submit registration for the same person. Uh, you are required to demonstrate a legitimate business need to file such application, which means two applications for the same person. And if you don't, then the each petition or each entity filing it will risk having both entities la labeled as related entities. And the result of that will be both registrations will be canceled. And in the event USCIS accepts and approves it, then those petitions can be revoked. Okay, great. Thank you for that clarity. So how does cap gap protection fit in the H-1B registration process? It only attaches upon filing the H-1B petition, not the registration. Therefore, um, you will get that benefit once the application is filed, but not before that. Okay, and then can an employer change a registration from a master's cap to regular cap? Is that possible? Absolutely not. If you file something as a master's cap and for some reason the beneficiary didn't get the master's degree, 
um, that registration, I mean, the application is going to be rejected or denied, but there is no provision to change one registration from one category to another category, and as well as it's not transferable if you want to, I guess, give that benefit to some other beneficiary. It can be done. Great. Thank you. So now let's talk about consulate backlogs and the visa process. So if I applied and paid the non-immigrant visa in one country, can I take an interview in another country? And then can you share anything about the visa process in your experience um, working with, with all of this throughout the years? Sure, sure. Um, so these the consular services is provided by this entity called CGI Federal. So if you applied for a visa in one country and you're moving to another country or happen to be in another country, which is also serviced by CGI Federal, then you don't need to do anything but just contact them and tell them and give them your employee, your uh, unique ID, your email address, and your passport number so that they can move your profile from the existing country to the new country but they cannot give you the credit if you have already paid the fees. So you need to repay the fee in the new country. The best you know, advice that we can always give to applicants is just be truthful and carry all your documents. Be thorough with your petitions. Make sure you are aware of its contents uh, because you're the person who's going to provide those answers uh, even for the company. Um, interview waiver is a big topic. It's not av available for uh, blanket L1, but dependents of uh, L1 blankets can apply for interview waiver. Uh, if after submission of your documents, if you get a call to appear for an interview, you should only go to the consulate that has asked you to come for the personal interview. You can switch consulates or go to a different consulate at that point. We have had recently a question where a person who is a, a intending immigrant, I meaning is in a beneficial approved petition, immigrant petition and uh, is asking us, can he go for a B1 visa and because he had some sort of urgency and the answer is yes, you can. Just because you have an immigrant petition approved on your behalf doesn't mean you don't qualify for a B1 visa, you can do that. Just wanted to share this new updates with uh, folks all there. Thank you for talking about the visa process and those updates. So let's talk a little, a little bit about bundling of the H4 and the L2 with EAD. So can an eligible applicant obtain H2 L H4 L2 EAD in premium process? Not directly. Premium process has is not available directly, but indirectly, yes, because uh, due to a recent uh, court decision uh, issued in January, USCIS has agreed to uh, process concurrently the uh, the EAD and the dependent application along with the primary application so long as they are filed together. And it doesn't matter if it's a regular or premium process. But if you file it together and let's say you do it in premium, there is a good chance that your dependents and the EAD will be approved at the same time. But this is just a temporary settlement and it's going to last for two years. It remains to be seen what happens next. Great. Thank you for that update. So regarding domestic visa renewals, will the Department of State really bring back stateside, stateside visa renewals? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, they seem to be pretty serious to bring this back. It was in place before it was discontinued in 2004. They used to have an office in St. Louis, Missouri, where the applications used to be sent. 
but it has been discontinued because the regulation requires collection of biometrics and that rule still exists. We don't know how the Department of State is going to collect the biometrics. It remains to be seen. Perhaps they will take the help of USCIS service centers, maybe, I don't know, local authorities. It needs to be seen. But yeah, I mean, it's expected that it's going to come back. Department is expected to open a consular division in uh, Washington, D.C. area, hopefully close to our Virginia office. Great. Thank you for that. So there have been some updates on the e-visa. So can you talk about what new changes have been brought into the e-visa program? Sure. Uh, uh, this is more into E1 and E2, which is a treaty trader and treaty investor visas. And it's for folks who, you know, citizens of certain countries, and there are 60 countries out there that do substantial trade with the United States. It can be in goods, services, or technology, or in make some substantial investor money in the United States. Notably in South Asia, I mean, um, there's Bangladesh, Egypt, Sri Lanka, and even Ukraine that have E2 uh, treaties with the United States. With respect to them, there are certain countries out there, especially Granada, Turkey, and Montenegro, that offer citizenship through investment. You don't need to be residing in that country. You just invest some money in there and you get the citizenship for that country. And then people would be able to apply for E2. That was in the past. The two changes that have been brought now is one, Portugal has been made a treaty country. And secondly, they said, you know, individuals who acquire citizenship in those countries, like uh, where they offer citizenship through investment, you need to be domiciled in that country for at least three years continuously. So unfortunately, that will delay the E2 process for them. Thank you for talking about those updates on the E2 and, and the time frame for that as well and the requirements. So let's talk about the R visa now. There were some updates to that as well. The religious worker petitions are subject to on-site inspections. So this is kind of slowing down the program. Um, we hear that there's a new policy in place that's supposed to help speed up the process. Can you run us through that new policy? Sure. Uh, the R1 has a requirement, or so far it, the requirement was that there should be an on-site inspection of the petitioning organization. So once you file a petition, somebody from UCS goes down there, checks the premises, and makes sure there's sufficient infrastructure and the person will perform the proposed religious duties that you put in the petition. But on March 2nd, UCS revised its policy and they said they're not going to do that like a pre-approval process. They're going to process your application and perhaps approve it if, if it qualifies, but and they can randomly select your petition for the site inspection and then can show up and check around. And if they find any problem, then they can issue a notice to revoke or you know, deny the case or um, if it's still pending, but if it's approved, they can try to revoke it. Thank you for talking about th that on the, the R visa. So let's talk about green card related questions. So we have a few questions from the audience. So under the INA, a non-citizen who might be subject to three years or 10 years in the bar is inadmissible. So what can the non-citizen do if they're facing the bar? Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes, this is a big, big news from USCIS, especially from the, uh, uh, the uh, department, the BIA. People who are subject to three and 10 years bar were supposed to, under the previous policy, spend that time outside the U.S. before they can become admissible again. But the recent decision changed that and said, you know, if you are subject to three or 10 year, you don't really have to spend that time outside the U.S. You could be in the U.S. and 
probably spend the time in another visa status. So in that decision, which was decided in February 2023, the court, you know, read that term admission as in the regulation to mean not just adjustment of status from 485 point of view, but also from entry from at the border. So uh, on, on its face, the statute does not say clearly whether the person must remain outside the U.S. So this is a big change. Great. Thank you for that update. So let's talk about biometrics a little bit. I heard about USCIS Mobile Biometrics Collection Program. Can you let us know what that is about? Yes, this is a new one that came out on March 7th. Uh, previously, we had, um, you know, aged uh, applicants who could not go to the service centers and were request, but that, you know, is there an alternate way? And we used to call USCIS and they would say, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. But now this is a big, big because, uh, you know, it looks like if you're in a good populated city, USCIS can actually go and collect the biometrics in person, maybe from your residences. Or if you live in a faraway place where you have to make a lot of travel, uh, they can make an alternate way to collect the biometrics, maybe through the local police department or something. Uh, I think they'll give you a fingerprint card you need to take there and get the biometrics done. So uh, this is a new step that they are taking. Thank you for talking about that. So there have been some updates to the Child Status Protection Act. There, there is a new policy change that will benefit aging out children to get their green cards along with their parents. Can you talk about those changes? Yes, uh, this is uh, another big news that came out of USCIS. So a couple of years ago, US, the Department of State revised its visa bulletin and introduced two tables in place of one table. The, the, the final action dates and the dates for filing. Previous uh, CSPA policy requires that only a child who qualified under the first child, uh, their age would be frozen or calculation of their age will be taken on the first chart. But now that the Department of State has uh, introduced the second chart and people could file under the second chart if their priority date becomes current and USCF authorizes it, the department came back and said, hey, you know, we will now calculate the child's age and freeze it based even on the second table so long as USCIS authorizes it. So it's going to benefit a lot of children. Thank you for talking about those updates. So let's talk a little bit about asylees and refugees. So it seems that previous USCIS policy has caused a lot of confusion on one-year physical presence requirements for refugees and asylees applying for the I-485 applications. So how should we understand this now? Well, on February 2nd, USCIS came out with a policy to clarify the one-year physical presence requirement for refugees and asylees who are uh, filing for the I-485 applications. Generally, to be eligible for I-485 filing, an asylee or refugee must be physically be present in the U.S. for at least one year after either being granted asylum status or admitted as a refugee. Until now, uh, USCIS was confusing uh, its, uh, you know, um, yeah, I guess in its requirement that when is it that you should meet the one-year requirement? Should it be at the time of filing the 485 or at the time of adjudication of the 485? So USCIS is now clarifying that that they should sat satisfy the one-year requirement at the time the 485 is adjudicated. So the policy has been made more uniform now. Great. Thank you so much for that update. So one last question for you. Let's talk about visa availability. Will the priority dates move forward this year? What are your thoughts on this? 
Well, it's a it's a long shot in the dark. Uh, you know, predicting immigrant visa demand is not an exact science. It requires a lot of calculations. I think it's best job for statisticians. Um, you know, there's one gentleman who used to handle this, uh, the visa control. Uh, his name is Mr. Charles Oppenheim. Did this for the last 20 years and nobody knows how he got his job done. And then he left the department in December 2021. And then since then, I guess there's no person that person could reach out and see how this works. But recent visa bulletins is not that encouraging. They're not really showing that there'll be a progression. And it varies by demand from consulates uh, and USCIS inventory. So it's very difficult. But critical moment, uh, months maybe where you need to probably look is June, July. And that's when the true picture comes out if it's going to progress or not. Thank you so much, Jagan, for sharing your expertise with us and for your time. This does bring us to the end of our conversation. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at infoedchuk.com. Stay safe and take care. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chuk.com for legal and immigration and www.chuk.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chug LLP team. 